welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. This season of the podcast is produced by the Future of Truth, which is a project based at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute that explores what truth is, where it's going, and why it matters for democracy. The project is made possible by generous funding from the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation, and our podcast features discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the cultural and political role of concepts like truth, fact, and information. Today, my guest is Jennifer Murchia. Jennifer is Associate Professor in the Department of Communication at Texas A&M University. Jennifer's research focuses on political rhetoric. She's the author of the book, Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. Now, you could follow her on Twitter at Jen Murchia, and that is J-E-N-M-E-R-C-I-E-C-A, all one word. I invited Jennifer on the program to talk with us today about why it matters how presidents speak. Hi, Jen. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on your program. Well, thanks for uh, for, for for joining me. Um, I wanted to begin uh, with you know the big picture. So you know you 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 study rhetoric. Um, why does political rhetoric matter? I mean, more specifically, I guess I want to know like why does it matter how politicians and office holders, in particular, and maybe specifically the president, why does it matter how they speak? Yeah, it's an important question. Uh, Most people don't think of the word rhetoric the way scholars of rhetoric think of it, of course. Um, We think of it as a form of knowledge. So um, Aristotle uh, made the distinction between um, dialectic and rhetoric, saying that rhetoric is the counterpart of dialectic, meaning that they are equal, um, they are methods, and they are equal methods for arriving at a different kind of truth or a specific kind of truth. So dialectic is the method of philosophy, and it leads to philosophical truth. So the Greek word is sophia. And rhetoric is the method of um, arriving at a different kind of truth called phronesis, which is uh, thought of as practical truth or practical wisdom. And for Aristotle, um, you know, they were both viable, useful methods. Um, Rhetoric was used in those situations where there was no absolute truth available. Either uh, we we didn't know it or we couldn't access it. Um, And communities, political communities, needed to make decisions. Um, He thought that it was natural, that it was inherent in politics, um, and that it was essentially the way that we solve problems. and so the study of rhetoric is the study of politics. Um, it's the study <laughs> of how we arrive at a certain kind of truth. Um, and so, yeah, the ways that uh, political figures, citizens, presidents in particular, the ways that they use rhetoric, um, you know, tell us a lot about the politics of that society, but also tell us a lot about, you know, the, to the point of your podcast, um, you know, the future of truth. So is there, let me just follow up very quickly on that. So is there um, a sense in which 
um, for those who occupy offices that give them access to, you know, power, <laughs> um, is, um, is there a sense in which those who hold political office um, are responsible for the way that they speak uh, in ways that maybe, you know, citizens uh, aren't or to a degree that maybe uh, citizens aren't? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think everyone should be responsible for the way that they communicate um, because it has an impact on others, right? Um, so, you know, we all have access now to social media. We all have access to the public sphere. And, you know, you and I um, are not elected officials, but we have a similar amount of access and power to the public um, as, you know, an elected official like Ted Cruz. You know, he has a much larger Twitter following than I do, but um, there are lots of other, you know, non-elected officials who have equal size audiences. Um, and so part of what we've always done is hold political figures accountable to how they speak and communicate. And most presidents in American history have been very careful communicators. Um, but we're at the point now where our communication technology has developed to such a degree that we all have the opportunity to um, affect the public, you know, to be propagandists, to be demagogues. Um, and unfortunately, most of us have have taken that opportunity <laughs> and have used uh, communication technology irresponsibly. Right. Um, so one of the um, one of the lessons, uh, one of the, the themes that recurs uh, in your public work and in your uh, book, Demagogue for President, um, is that um, political rhetoric can be an exercise of power in, in more than just the, the the sense that you outlined that Aristotle was interested in, which is the the power of persuading and moving people and getting people on the same page. Um, political rhetoric can also um, be um, a kind of power to suppress and intimidate and dominate others. Um, and this is tied to uh, the theme that um, uh, the former president, uh, Donald Trump, um, was more of a demagogue than, than a president. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so this is the thing that I try to make clear whenever I do interviews is that Donald Trump is a demagogue. He's not a president. He's never communicated as a president does, but always communi communicated as a demagogue does. Um, so, you know, scholars who study communication, rhetoric scholars, um, we think of the ability to influence or persuade another, you know, sort of existing along a continuum. Um, on one end would be that kind of, you know, pure deliberation, um, you know, that Aristotle talked about using rhetoric, um, argument, persuasion as a method to discover a certain kind of truth, um, you know, bound by a certain kind of ethics, essentially a meeting of the minds, right, where you invite someone else to think like you do, to value the same values that you value, um, to remember or forget history in the same way that you do. 
acknowledging that they have their own experiences and their own agenda and that they may not, you know, choose to agree with you, but that it's their choice and you sort of invite them to think like you. Um, you know, that's obviously an ideal, uh, but it sort of tethers one end of the continuum. The other end of the continuum um, would be something like compliance gaining. Um, it's a kind of force. It's using um, rhetoric, language, argument, you know, propaganda as a, a tool to force others to behave the way you want them to. It denies consent. It doesn't give people the choice. It manipulates rather than invites um, and Donald Trump is a master at that negative sense <laughs> of persuasion. Um, you know, whether it is something that he studied through marketing or, um, you know, whether it's something that's innate to his psychology, I cannot tell you. Uh, but what I can tell you is that he is absolutely consistent with the strategies that he uses. Um, he uses them in different ways in different situations. So sometimes he'll pull back and use less aggressive strategies um, and then deploy them when he needs to. Um, and that he is just incredibly aggressive um, and, and a demagogue. Um, and what I mean by a demagogue is, is again, something that I learned from Aristotle. Um, <laughs> I don't I don't always think of myself as an Aristotelian, but today I am. Uh, <laughs> we all are. <laughs> we all are, it's true, <laughs> even if we don't like to admit it. Um, but what Aristotle taught me is that the demagogue in ancient Athens was an unofficial leader of the people who went into the assembly and urged or advocated for policies that he was then not responsible for implementing. Um, and so it was that irresponsibility, that unaccountability that made the demagogue different from, you know, a, a more positive leader of the people. Um, and so what I think of as, as demagoguery are those rhetorical strategies that someone like Donald Trump would use to prevent themselves from being held accountable. Um, and I have never seen, to be honest, um, someone who is so good at avoiding accountability. You know, this is a president who was impeached twice. Um, and so you might think, well, I guess that's some kind of accountability, but not really. Um, he denied ever being impeached, really. He always called it a hoax. Um, obviously, he was never convicted in either case. Um, you know, this is someone who led an insurrection against the government and still was not held accountable for it. Um, you know, just the list is uh, it's too long to mention here, but there are so many things that Donald Trump did that we never could pin him down for. Um, so unfortunately, he's he's great at using demagoguery to avoid accountability. Yeah. So, you know, there's a there's a pretty um, uh, morose joke and he's he's been impeached twice so far. <laughs> <laughs> because who knows what the next election is going to be like. <laughs> he could he could be president again. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's often said in line with this and, and sort of, a, you know, I, I, as a philosopher, I've puzzled over this when I've heard people say it on the news um, that, um, you know, Trump's critics take what he says literally, but not seriously, um, whereas his supporters take what he says non-literally, but seriously. Um, and it always struck me that one of the um, features of his communicative style was that um, 
almost anything he said admits of just two different kinds, at least two different kinds of um, maybe interpretations in the right, um, two different kinds of um, uh, understandings of what was, you know, of what was being said. Um, and often what was being said wasn't um, easily um, discerned by just looking at the words he was using. Yeah. Um, and in fact, when you looked at, I, I, for a little while, I started um, sort of looking for written transcripts of of um, speeches. Um, and when you read them on the page, I mean, I'm sure you've you've noticed this too. When you read them on the page, they um, uh, it's it's hard to see how any message could be conveyed uh, <laughs> by somebody speaking those words. Um, because they're often incomplete sentences, they're not grammatical, they're not, you know, complete thoughts often. Um, but um, in the presence of um, in the presence of him when speaking, it was pretty. It was it seemed to me when I watched, you know, him speaking on the news when I was able to to do so. Um, you know, it, it never seemed to me that um, it was unclear what was being communicated. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so irony is saying two things at once. It's negating the literal with the figural. Um, and one of the six rhetorical strategies that I track Trump using in my book is paralepsis. Um, and colloquially, you know, that's understood as I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Um, right. And so Trump, Trump would sometimes use that form, literally say, I'm not saying, but I'm just saying, <laughs> right? I'm not saying that Ted Cruz is, you know, ineligible to be president. I'm just saying that I heard that or I just, you know, I'm just saying that 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 I, that was reported, um, you know, sometimes he would he would phrase it in ways that were less directly in that form. So for example, he would retweet people um, that had terrible things to say. <laughs> um, white nationalists were constantly, um, you know, sort of giving him tweet bait, retweet bait. Um, they had uh, retweet happy hours every day trying to get Trump to retweet them. And he often did. <laughs> and and then, you know, the news would say, hey, uh, what's up? You just retweeted some white nationalist. Well, what, do you agree with that? And he would say, well, I didn't tweet it. I just retweeted it. Right. I didn't say it. I just said it. Um, I, I didn't use the word. I mentioned the word. Yeah. Right. Or he'll use another strategy that you've heard him do a lot of times when you try to catch him, you know, and nail him down on what he really said and what he meant by what he said, um, where he'll say, oh, it was just a joke and you didn't get it. Joke's on you. You know, so like I didn't really tell people to inject bleach into their body. I didn't say that. Uh, you just, you know, the I was joking and uh, the media, unfortunately, they take that seriously and they don't get it. When Selena Zito um, asked him about the literal serious you know, gap um, that she wrote about, uh, his response was to say, well, that's interesting. <laughs> um, you know, he loves that ambiguity. He um, he plays to that ambiguity. It's it's one of his favorite rhetorical strategies. Um 
you know, I maybe I shouldn't say this, but because it was sort of off the record, but um, one of the reporters who I speak with a lot and had spoken with a lot prior to the 2016 election happened to be on inauguration day in Washington, D.C., standing next to one of Trump's ex-wives. And for some reason, I'll never understand why, asked the ex-wife about this, about <laughs> about Trump using paralipsis. <laughs> and, you know, what I'm not saying, I'm just saying was all about. And she said, yeah, that's, that's essentially Trump. <laughs> I'm not saying, I'm just saying is exactly the way Trump communicates. It's exactly his strategy. Um, and I think that we've, we've heard the same thing from Michael Cohen in his, you know, sort of unpacking after the fact now, um, you know, what Trump is about. It's always, it's implied and never stated overtly. Right. So uh, another question on this. So um, it, it, it seems, you know, uh, clear. And so I, th- I think you're right that the the purpose of um, th- these rhetorical tactics, uh, I'm talking now particularly about Trump, is to um, deflect responsibility. Um, but I take it that um, it's also uh, one of the um, aims of adopting a rhetorical strategy <laughs> like the, the ones that uh, 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 Trump adopts that um, they, they, not, they, they have to deflect responsibility while also um, – appealing to people while also, um, uh, you know, leading people, uh, again, to pick up on the, 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 the Greek <laughs> demagogue, right. Leading people, um, you know, to, uh, to do certain things or to believe certain things or to behave in certain ways or to adopt certain kinds of attitudes. Um, how, how do you think that, um, the, I'm not saying, but I'm saying, uh, uh, strategy and how is it effective in moving, or, or, or leading an audience in the in the required way to make, I mean, in the way that would make it a successful strategy. Yeah. So there's three things that I I wrote about in my book that Trump does um, routinely to to bring himself closer to his audience to consolidate that relationship between him and his base. The first one is ad populum. So appealing to the wisdom of the crowd, Trump's followers were always the best people, the best part of America, the best version of America, the only real Americans. You know, he had a multitude of ways of praising them, um, you know, calling them the smartest, telling them he loved them. Um, in, in, you know, talking about crowd size, all of that was a way of appealing to the wisdom of his base and saying, you know, that that they were the best and, you know, himself as their leader, you know, he's always going to protect them. But, you know, he's essentially the king of the best people, right? So very much <laughs> um, needing the power of his people. Obviously, a demagogue is, is powerless without the people. Um, the second one is paralipsis. And the thing that paralipsis does is it allows his audience to believe, first of all, that he's authentic, that he's just speaking the truth. So one of the things that you always hear them say is, well, I just love the guy because even if I don't agree with him, I know just what he thinks. That is so untrue. <laughs> you don't know just yeah, what that guy thinks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but he makes you think that you do because he says, I'm not supposed to say this. They don't want me to tell you this. No one else is going to tell you this. But, and then he'll tell you, you know, the awful truth in quotes. Um, you know, so it, it's that sort of 
um, a, a peek into the backstage where you think that you know the real authentic Trump and that he's really telling you what he really actually thinks, the thing that he shouldn't say. You know, he's so brave for saying it. They don't want you to know this. There's this conspiracy against us, right? Like all of that is really appealing um, for an audience, especially once they believe that they're the best, greatest um, part of America. And then the <laughs> third thing that he used to connect himself to his base is American exceptionalism. And for Trump, it wasn't the typical way that a president would use American exceptionalism, which is to say that, you know, America is unique. It has certain obligations to the rest of the world. We have certain values that we're trying to uphold. Um, and those values, when we uphold them, you know, make us a great nation. Trump um, uses American exceptionalism as America winning. And he talks about himself as the apotheosis of America and American winning. He says, I was born on Flag Day, right? I am the most patriotic person in America because, you know, I'm kind of like America itself. Um, not only was I born on Flag Day, but I'm such a success. I'm such a winner. And I'm going to win for America. You know, it's so easy for me to win for you. Um, and the combination of those three things is, you know, really enticing for an audience that feels like, you know, America's losing, that they themselves personally are losing. Um, you know, they feel that they need a strong authoritarian leader. And here's this guy who promises to love them, calls them the best, um, and says that he knows how to do it. And it's so easy for him. Right, right. That's, uh, yeah. Good. <laughs> you laid it out. Uh, um, so I wanted to make sure, though, uh, that we we got time to, to look forward a little bit. Um, so, you know, I, I suspect um, I'm not the only one. And that's a way of saying I suspect that you, too, have seen a lot of people on social media and even on the news sometimes um, expressing the idea that um, Biden's presidency marks a refreshing return to normalcy. And some even say, you know, it's just nice to have a boring president again and that we're, you know, even Biden himself, America is back. Um, now, I, 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 you know, I, I understand the sentiment, you know, it, it, it's nice to, um, you know, to turn on the news or to open up your social media platform and not be bombarded with, you um, the president. I mean, just, you know, forgetting you know, independently of any of the content of what's being reported, it's just nice to, you know, not have every, you know, um, ounce of psychological energy being, you know, sort of claimed by a person uh, uh, who, uh, you know, who holds the presidency. Um, but I guess I'm just wondering if it's, if there is something that's, you know, if it's possible to return to normal. Um I guess, you know, sort of assuming that one of the ways in which sort of demagoguery works is not only to sort of move a people to adopt certain attitudes, but also um, to dissolve trust um, and confidence and um, uh, to, to cast doubt on fundamental institutions like the media. Um, so I'm wondering if, you know, if that's also part of the, the, um, 
the the package of demagoguery is this dissolving of trust so that more and more trust gets invested in the demagogue. Um, uh, I wonder if the removal of the demagogue um, is enough to mark a return. To, I mean, is there a way back? I mean, you've taken this, you know, this this uh, the, the, this attention sucking, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 all you know, ever present psychologically at least uh, presence out of the political environment, maybe only temporarily. Um, and uh, we have a, a, a standard kind of president, it seems now. Um, uh, but I guess I'm just not sure that that's a return to normal. It feels like it's normal. <laughs> mm-hmm. But is there a way back? Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, and I, I absolutely agree with the premise. I was surprised that Biden was the Democratic Party nominee um, you know, I would not have picked him as a nominee in January of 2020. Um, but then, it, it, you know, especially after the virus started, um, it became clear to me that he was actually the perfect choice. And part of that was his compassion and his ability to talk about loss Um you know, which is one of the roles of the presidency that Trump was na- never able to do. They call it the priestly role of the president. During moments of crisis, we call on the president to invoke our values and tell us how they're going to get us through. Biden is amazing at that. Um, I'm not sure if there's been a better president who, you know, who can really play that role. Um on a daily basis. Um, you know, right. <laughs> Reagan had, you know, his moments, the challenger speech was a really fine example, but, um, you know, this is every day. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, you know, and, and they did nominate him and he did win. And I think part of that is, you know, longing for someone to play that role, but also, like you say, wanting to return to normal and, you know, going back to Biden Obama time <laughs> before Trump and just like have her do over um <laughs> you know part of part of that I think was his appeal um and then to to your other point um Patricia Roberts Miller who's a colleague of mine at University of Texas Austin she writes about demagoguery as um like the demagogue emerges from demagogic culture Right. And that the culture itself turns to demagoguery um, as a dominant form of communication. And, you know, that provides the context within which the demagogue can flourish. And I think she's right about that. In my book, um, I explain that we were already, when Trump entered the political scene in 2015, experiencing historic and crisis levels of distrust and polarization and frustration. And that Trump's rhetorical strategies were absolutely designed to increase all of those negative things to his own advantage. And so I tell, you know, six different stories for each of those three things, how he used those rhetorical strategies to increase distrust, how he used them to increase polarization and then frustration. Um, And he really, you know, took advantage of all of those negative things, really attacking our public sphere, attacking America in the process and um, absolutely anti-democratic strategy. Um, So can we recover from that? I think we see other people trying to do uh, what Trump did, right, to use outrage to control the public sphere, to set the nation's agenda. Um, Trump is better at it than they are. Right. So there's a vacuum now where, um, you know, 
these other politicians are trying to use his strategies. And I, I don't know that it can work as well as it worked for him for a couple of reasons. We're a little bit wiser now, um, but not much, frankly. Um, and, and, and also, you know, Trump was, was, was unable, unwilling, um, absolutely defiant, you know, unable to accept like any kind of sanction or <laughs> admit any kind of error. And I think that, that is a very unusual quality to have, to be honest. I, I think that most of us acknowledge communal norms, um, and he he is unwilling to do that. Um, and so I think it's actually hard to do what Trump did because I think that there's there's sort of an element of humanity that prevents most of us from taking it to the extreme level that he did. And I'm not qualified to diagnose what that might be <laughs> that prevents him from doing it. Um, it's just something I observe. <laughs> but is there something that you think Biden, I mean, it, it seems as though, I mean, Biden's strategy so far has just been to be normal, <laughs> which, again, you know, I'm all for it. Um, but I'm just wondering if, you know, just the, the return to the ex ante you know, condition, um, you know, that might be refreshing, but I don't know that it's, it actually repairs anything. Yeah. I mean, I think that he's trying to show that the government can do things, that government is a positive good. It should not be dismantled and deregulated and starved of its power. Um, and that, you know, by succeeding, in disseminating the vaccine by, you know, getting the kids back to school by doing all these things that he's trying to do. Um, I think that he's trying to show that by succeeding that, you know, you can trust the government. And that's a huge win if he's able to accomplish that, right? Because we've seen declining levels of trust in all branches of government, um, you know, for the last 20, 25 years. And, you know, he's, he's working against a political agenda from the opposition party that says you shouldn't trust the government to do anything. Um, and yet we do trust the government to do a lot of things. Um, so, you know, he's fighting against that kind of perception and, um, you know, I, I wish him the best, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to see that's... the government solve some problems. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a, a an adequately positive note uh, um, uh, to to wrap up the, our conversation with Jennifer Murchea. Um, it's been really um, uh, wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for joining me on Why We Argue. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, uh, for tuning in. Uh, this is the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. I want to thank our podcast team. Uh, Tommy, uh, Toby Napolitano at the University of California at Merced handles our sound production. Elizabeth Della Zazara of the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute is our communications coordinator. Andrew Johnson handles research uh, for us at the University of Connecticut. Uh, we also want to give special thanks to uh, Matt Garigula for uh, creative inspiration. I'll just remind you that the podcast is produced by the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute's Future of Truth Project with generous funding from University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. Thank you for listening and bye for now.